Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Trump and his administration decided that they could use COVID-19 as a way of triggering and angering people. And, you know, we're going to be recovering from that decision, that terrible, self-serving, bad decision for a long time. That's Ann Applebaum. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Applebaum is an expert on autocracies. She's written several award-winning books on Stalinist Russia. Her most recent, Twilight of Democracy, is a polemic against the anti-democratic parties that have grown in her adopted home Poland, in the United Kingdom, and right here in the United States. During the COVID-19 pandemic and the contentious 2020 presidential election, Applebaum has written about the failures of American institutions and what these breakdowns reveal about the state of the nation. Applebaum and I talk about the nature of authoritarianism, why one-third of the population is susceptible to autocratic rhetoric, and how we can restore national unity after the trying events of the last year. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user Jamie KI1991537. Hope that's not your social security number. The question asks, please talk about the investigation in the Manhattan DA's office. What is a reasonable timeline? What does it mean Michael Cohen interviewed seven times? Also, what impact will Vance not running for re-election have on the investigation and or prosecution? So obviously you're asking about the ongoing investigation that's gotten a lot of attention of Cy Vance's office, the Manhattan District Attorney's office, into Donald Trump's finances. They just received his tax information from his accounting firm, Mazars. They hired a forensic accounting firm, FTI. They also hired an outside lawyer as a special assistant district attorney, Mark Pomerantz, who is an alum, two-time alum of SDNY. So what's a reasonable timeline? You know, they've been working on this for a while. They've only gotten new tax-related information recently. But my sense is, given the moves that Cy Vance has made and the people that he has brought on board, and given the election coming up that you alluded to, that a decision will be made to prosecute or not prosecute by the end of the year, either before the election or certainly before Sybans turns over the reins to whoever gets elected in November. Do I know that for sure? No. Do I know that based on any inside information? No. But every signal is that they're prepared to do this thing, and I think the overall odds are fairly high that they believe they have a criminal case to make. It is just not feasible to me, incredible to me, that you make such public moves, such substantial hiring moves, if you don't believe there's a high chance of proceeding. What does it mean that Michael Cohen interviewed seven times? It means he's got a lot of information to give. It also might mean, I just don't know, that Michael Cohen is a difficult person to interview and a difficult person to corroborate. Seven is a long time, but I don't know how long those meetings were. Maybe there were seven short meetings, maybe there were seven long meetings, but it does at a minimum mean that he has a lot of information to impart and there's a lot to untangle there. As your final question, what impact will Vance not running for re-election have 
on the investigation and or prosecution. I don't think it has much of an effect. I think it does indicate that given that he started the investigation, he wants to conclude the investigation. He won't be able to conclude the prosecution if there's a charge that's brought because trials take a, a, a while to come about and to finish and appeals take a while as well. But I think it would be very difficult for a new district attorney to come in with charges having been filed against the president of the United States or the former president of the United States and do anything other than proceed with it, especially if it's been done at the recommendation and under the supervision of the outside lawyer, Mark Pomerantz. So I think it will proceed apace. I think that all the candidates who are running are the type of people who would want to continue the investigation and prosecution. So speaking of Cy Vance and the DA's office, uh, relatedly, I've gotten a few questions from people, including this one from Twitter user WG Levy, who asks, will you replace Cy Vance? The answer to that question is no, I am not running. There's a large field of people who are running. I have made an endorsement in the election of Alvin Bragg, friend and former colleague from the U.S. Attorney's Office, who's terrific, who I think would be a great leader of the Manhattan DA's office, also served time in, in private practice and at the New York Attorney General's office. So it's not going to be me. And I hope it is Alvin Bragg. This question comes in a tweet from listener at Jim Sarantaeus, who asks, will the DOJ reverse the policy of not indicting a sitting president? Hashtag ask Breed. So this question has come up before, and I've thought a little bit further about it. And I think while it's, it's premature to predict that DOJ will reverse the policy as outlined in two Office of Legal Counsel memoranda that we have talked about over the last couple of years, it's premature to determine whether or not they will reverse the policy, but I think it's likely that they will revisit the policy. As you may recall, those two LC opinions came about the last couple of times that impeachment was in the air. The first time after Watergate and Nixon back in the early to mid 70s, and then the last time after the Clinton impeachment back in the late 90s. And here we are, having concluded two impeachment trials of former President Donald Trump and all sorts of other issues relating to potential federal charges against him, ranging from the 1-6 insurrection to election interference and what have you. So I think there is some reason, since it's been a couple of decades, for a new set of eyes and lawyers at the Office of Legal Counsel to reconsider or at least re-examine the principles behind the policy of not indicting a sitting president. I will say also that there's some pressure or at least interest on in the part of elected officials in OLC doing that. Prime among them, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, who's a former AG of the state, former U.S. attorney of the state, He's brought the issue up of OLC opinions generally at both confirmation hearings for Vanita Gupta, Lisa Monaco, and also for Merrick Garland. He also, in the last week, wrote a letter to the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, about OLC memos that get withdrawn, that don't seem to be well-reasoned, that are kept secret. And so implicit in that is the idea that maybe they should revisit the policy of not indicting a sitting president as well. He's pretty harsh in talking about prevailing OLC opinions. In his letter, he refers specifically to the OLC memo that has not been withdrawn, that creates a procedural box canyon for the theory that no president can be investigated or prosecuted for a criminal offense, end quote. He says also, quote, this OLC theory evades judicial scrutiny and review, even though in our government of laws, it is the responsibility of courts to state what the law is, end quote. So he and others, I think, for good reason and in good faith, will be calling for a review of that particular OLC policy that you ask about. This is a very important question from Twitter user at John57Healy. Do you think Bell Bottoms will ever come back? No, John. No. Bell Bottoms will never, ever come back. 
stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. My guest this week is Ann Applebaum, staff writer at The Atlantic and an expert on authoritarianism. We talk about the state of democracy in the United States and Europe and who is most responsible for the polarization that dominates so much of global politics. And Applebaum, welcome to the show. So good to have you. Thank you. I want to talk about this book of yours that's not quite new. It came out some months ago. And I read it cover to cover, and I think everyone should. It's called Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. So it's a romance novel, right? <laughs> yes, it's a love story. <laughs> it's with a, happy a love ending. story. <laughs> you, you always want a you always want a book that has the word seductive lure, the word seductive mm. lure in them. <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about the book because I think this issue of authoritarianism and autocracy and whether we've escaped it or whether we can ever ultimately be sure that we're escaping it, I think is just as important now as it was before the election, given some of the things that have happened. And I want to start with, I want to start with some research that you cite from Karen Stenner, which is, is kind of eye-popping. Uh, and that is that, that she, a behavioral economist, who began researching personality traits two decades ago, you say, quote, has argued that about a third of the population in any country has what she calls an authoritarian predisposition. So on the one hand, a third, should we be horrified if that's accurate, that that's the number? Or should we be pleased that it's well below a majority in any country? I think we should be unsurprised. The attraction of authoritarianism to some people, the dislike of democracy, the the horror that a lot of people feel when they hear angry argumentation and bitter debate is something that has existed across time. And that it was a part of society and that it was an, you know, an, an undercurrent in our democracies and maybe more dominant in other countries shouldn't have surprised us, but of course it did. Um, many of us had been so convinced by the American success story, you know, particularly over the, you know, since the Second World War, that we forgot something that the founding fathers actually knew, which is that there are always people who are attracted to authoritarians or to authoritarianism and finding a way to accommodate them into liberal democracy um, has, has always been a problem and will always be. Does that one third number ring true to you? So funny enough, it does. Um, when I, when I was, when I was reading her work, I, I said to a friend of mine, you know, I wonder if it's a coincidence that 
the current ruling party in Poland is a kind of authoritarian populist nationalist party. And they've, you know, consistently got around a third of the vote. Um, if you look at, you know, the number of people who believe that the election was stolen in the United States and are inclined to believe, you know, the views of, um, you know, alternative far right media, that also gets you to a number, something like a third, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less. Um, and it, it, it does seem right to me. I mean, I, I, I don't know that it's a scientific number. I'm, and one of the things I really like about Karen Stenner um, is that she doesn't talk about an authoritarian personality like it's something you know, you can never get rid of, like having blue eyes or something. She talks about it as a predisposition. In other words, that there are conditions that make certain kinds of characters more afraid and more inclined to authoritarianism. And then there are certain kinds of conditions where they're less inclined. Um, so it's something that exists as a, as a possibility, but it's not preordained. Um, and that feels right to me because, um, I mean, almost anybody who's ever tried to do determinism in politics and say this X or Y will definitely happen is almost always wrong because situations change and the the mood of people changes along with them. Um, and I think it's as, as true in this case as it is in everything, you know, in many others. Yeah. Further to what you said a second ago, you write that this predisposition, it is a frame of mind, not a set of ideas. Why is that an important distinction? For one, it means that you can find authoritarians all across the political spectrum. So I wrote three books about Soviet communism. I mean, that was pretty much what I was doing <laughs> over the last 20 or 30 years more than anything else. And so I'm well aware that there's a history of left-wing totalitarianism and there's a left-wing way of thinking that is anti-democratic. But we are faced in America and in many parts of Europe at the moment with a different, I mean, it's an ideologically different threat to democracy and it looks and sounds different. Um, but it also appeals to people who have this authoritarian predisposition. Once you understand that it's something that can come in different flavors and different colors and different ideologies, and that it's it appeals to people in certain kind of conditions, then I think you can better understand the the rise and fall and flow of the appeal of authoritarianism. So, if if you are a budding authoritarian in some country that is otherwise at least nominally democratic, like the United States. And you're familiar with this research, and you then believe that there's a third of the population who has this trait or this predisposition. What is your strategy for coming to power? The strategy for coming to power is the one that we have seen used um, over the last several years in a number of countries by people who I think understand this very well. And the strategy is create a sense of sociological or cultural threat you or your lifestyle or your identity are under threat. You are in danger of being wiped out. Um, and this, this leads to a, um, you know, an increase in fear in some people and leads them to, to doubt democracy. Another thing you can do, and this has also been done, is you can increase the cacophony, you know, the loudness of debate and amp amplify extremism. Um, if you're someone, as many people with a kind of authoritarian predisposition are, if you're someone who fears and dislikes bitter and angry debate and is somehow, um, you know, and is somehow, you know, made angry, personally angrier by that, then you're also someone li more likely to choose, um, choose authoritarianism. So an increase in cacophony, uh, more extremism, an implication of threat, you know, you're, you're at risk of being, of being wiped out or disappeared from society. These seem to be 
things that um, that certain kinds of people respond to very well. It's not an accident that many authoritarians on their way to power um, or when in power talk about, you know, we, we in America, it's a kind of cliche, but it's there are different versions of it all over the world, talk about law and order, use of the police, use of force, cracking down, shutting up, making everyone be quiet, making everybody unified. Um, these are things that make some people feel better. You know, people who don't like who don't like disagreement, division, who don't like cacophony, who don't like also heterogeneous um, you know, societies, who don't like diversity. Um, these are people who will then be who will then find that kind of politics appealing. And there are a lot of people who either who either know this because they've been studying it for years or who understand it intuitively. Um, and this is this is why that language is ha, has been used over the years by so many different kinds of authoritarians on both the left and the right. Although it's it's a little confusing to me, I guess, because some of the people who would be in favor of uh, you know a transition to autocracy who support some of these folks who strike fear in their hearts and say that their way of life is under threat, they themselves sometimes engage in bitter debate too in favor of their favorite candidate. Do they not? Sure. Although, I mean, I, I'm not saying that everybody is consistent or that there's a there's a there's a plan. Um, I'm saying that that using extremist language is something that they know can can will will appeal to a certain kind of person, um, and that it will, you know, it will cause them to you know to demand silence. I'm not everybody's doing it consciously, but I do believe some are. So, so if you're if you're not the budding authoritarian, but you are the budding, you know, democratic you know, future leader, and you believe in the values of democratic pluralism, and you know about this one third of the population, what's your strategy for, not, not, not for coming to power so much in that example, but, but how to address that third or how not to address that third? So this is really um, the question of the moment. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's, and that's just, why we have you on. <laughs> this is, this, and this is not an abstract question. This is the question of what does Joe Biden do? Yeah. Um, what do Democrats in Congress do? What do some Republicans in Congress do, actually, with the phenomenon that we've now seen that exists in America, namely the existence of a large number of Americans who are now anti-systemic? So and by that, I mean, when you look at what happened in the Capitol on January the 6th, those people were not Republicans fighting Democrats. That's not why they were there. They were there because they were opposed to Congress itself. They were trying to undo the results of a Democratic election. Some of them wanted to hang Mike Pence. Some of them wanted to hang Mike Pence. You know, I believe he's a Republican were, still. He is, as far as we know, he's still a Republican. <laughs> you know, we might soon learn otherwise, but right now that's all we know. Um, but they were trying to prevent Congress from executing its constitutional, you know, um, obligation of recognizing the next president and, and moving on. They were trying to stop that. What's scary isn't that there were several thousand people there. What's scary is the number of people in the country who support them. And we don't really know exactly what that real number is. I mean, I saw a number not that long after January the 6th that showed something like 20% of Americans, not of the Republican Party, but of Americans supporting the assault on the Capitol. I don't know whether the number is still that high. You know, maybe it's gotten a little lower. Um, something like 30% say they don't believe Joe Biden is a legitimate president. And there's your 30%. What's the real number of uh, you know there who are actually you know who who are actually dangerous? I don't know. Maybe it's even if we said it's half that, maybe it's ten to fifteen percent. It's a lot of people, 
And for for Biden, for um, constitutional Republicans and Democrats, they are an enormous problem for our country. And so the question is, what do you do to make those people feel somehow comfortable in liberal democracy? How do you integrate them? Um, And there are a number of different places and examples that you can look for 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 some guidance. Um, It's worth probably noting that Karen Stenner herself has written about this. And her argument is that anything that projects unity, I mean, she says, you know, literally everybody wearing the same uniform, marching in formation, you know, any images like that help that group of people feel close to or connected to society. So she has a very specific idea that stressing unity, stressing togetherness, showing pictures of everyone all lined up together, that this is a, this, this, you know, um, communication using that as its base, you know, will and could, you know, could work. And of course there is some evidence that Biden's White House has, is thinking along those lines. Um, another interesting place to go and look for examples of how this is done is to look at other countries that have had anti-systemic or um, violent insurgencies and have found ways around them. And the one I always find the most interesting, which although it's not like the United States in any way, it's an interesting parallel. And that one is Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland, again, nothing to do with the United States. I'm not saying we're the same. I'm not saying that we have a terrorist movement, nothing like that. But the division in Northern Ireland was irreconcilable. In other words, there were some people in the country who believed that the country was part of Ireland and some who believed it was part of Great Britain. And this was a this was a division that that there was no halfway house solution to. You know, you couldn't get everybody else in a room and have them argue it out and everyone would agree on some, right. you know, in-between thing. There just wasn't one. It looked hopeless for a long time, right? And it looked hopeless for a long time and the violence increased. Um, and both sides were, um, you know, and as the violence increased, the more moderate people became drawn into it, you know, and people took sides and split apart and li- like, physically lived apart um, in, in, you know, more and more because, you know, violence has a way of radicalizing people. Um, and it seemed like there, 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 was, there was no solution. And the, the, the solution in Northern Ireland, I mean, there's a, again, it's a long history. And again, I'm not saying there's a blueprint for the United States here or a kind of, you know, we just follow the, follow the dots and we do what they did and it'll be the same. But they do offer some food for thought. And so one of the things that happened in Northern Ireland, the, the peace process in Northern Ireland um, did not involve everybody getting together in a room and arguing about stuff. It involved changing the subject. So we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, um, you know, and this was kind of at the community level. We're going to talk, we're going to all build a community center and we're going to talk as Catholics and Protestants in one community. We're going to talk about what kind of Christmas tree lighting we should have this year. Um, you know, I mean, that's a trivial example. There were some more serious ones. Are we, are we going to talk about um, we need a new road or we need to fill the potholes or we need to build a bridge in our community or we, didn't, we need a new work training program for young people, both Catholic and Protestant, and we're going to talk about that. And that didn't get rid of the problem of the deep problem of identity and division and polarization, but at least, you know, the people who were trying to solve these other problems weren't trying to kill each other. You know, so if you can get people to, to focus on other things, then you can lower the tone and get everybody to be less angry. And that's, by the way, that's a kind of known tactic that's used in post-Civil War societies and so-called post-conflict societies you know, getting people to focus on um, some project that everyone can do together, regardless of their political views or identities or religions, any way to stop shooting each other. 
so I'm going to jump ahead uh, <laughs> my outline because you've called something to mind. You would have thought that that thing could be, not just in this country, but in the world, the reaction to COVID-19. Like, w- What other thing could there be that is non-denominational, that is non-partisan, you know, non-ideological? It's just a faceless disease. And yet, you know, that hasn't happened. There hasn't been, at least so far, and you, you strike an optimistic note at the end of your book, but this was some months ago. I wonder how you think about how we, particularly in America, have reacted to COVID-19. And have we just squandered an opportunity to come together around something that changes the subject from all the differences we have? So we squandered a huge opportunity, um, but that was deliberate. I mean, the you know Trump and his administration decided that they could use COVID-19 as a way of triggering and angering people um, by... Um, by implying that it was a left-wing plot, by implying that it was a it was a trick to get people locked up in their houses, by implying again that it was part of this threat system that makes people so angry and upset, and you know we're going to be recovering from that decision, that terrible self-serving bad decision for a long time. I mean, and there is a reason why the U.S. has had so many deaths and why the U.S. has dealt so chaotically with this, um, at least up until the moment. And it's because rather than using this as a as a unifying um, challenge, which which has happened in other countries, I should say, the Trump administration decided to make it part of the, you know, part of the identity war, part of the cultural war. Maybe there is some hope now. I mean, it's still early days and the vaccine rollout is super chaotic, um, particularly in the you know part of the country I know best, which is Washington and Maryland. But, you know, it may be that as it progresses and as it begins to work, um, that it's more possible to build some sense of national achievement around that. I wrote an, in an article I recently wrote in The Atlantic, I, I, I even suggested, I mean, why not create a, um, a volunteer corps around the vaccine project? You know, one that could get kids from different parts of the country working in other parts of the country. Um, we have this, we have in, in, in the U.S. this we have America Corps, which was set up in the Clinton administration as a national volunteer project, but it's always been underfunded. It's never been, it's never worked the way it should have done. It's, it was meant to be a kind of domestic Peace Corps. Right. You know, how about reviving something like that, you know, and getting people, you know, I don't know, red, blue, black, white, you know, north, south, east, west, getting people working on projects together through that. And one of them could be um, ending the pandemic. Um, and then the other obvious one is the economic crisis that has beset so many communities in the wake of the pandemic. I mean, finding some, everyone fo- focusing everyone on that, how we're going to fix that, and, and even getting people to argue about it. I mean, frankly, the argument over what size the COVID check should be, you know, or whether these this kind of business or that one should be bailed out is a better argument to be having than one over, you know, who won the election and who's a real American. I wonder, as you're speaking, if you think that the global pandemic, COVID-19, will end up being the greatest controlled experiment for social scientists and political scientists and others in, you know, a century or two. Obviously, every country is different and the political systems of various countries are different and the geography is different. But, you know, the pandemic was the pandemic. And aside from the varying strains, it had the the opportunity to do the same amount of damage in every country on earth. And yet there are huge differences. Do you, do you think this is or should be the thing that centrally occupies people's attention to figure out how to improve 
researchers' own own countries? So it's a little, um, I've been asked about this almost since the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, is what does it mean for politics? Yeah. Um, and and one, of the, one of the problems is that almost everything you said about it in March or April turned out to be wrong by July or August, you know, and then everything you said in July or August was wrong by, you know, January and February. I mean, it's the, as, as it changes and as it has different impacts over time, I think people are going to draw different political conclusions from it. So, so the answer to your question might, might be yes, but it might, but maybe not for several years. The totality of how a particular society dealt with it, how it dealt with the economic fallout, how it dealt with um, test contact tracing, you know, testing, um, production of, of antibodies, how it dealt with the vaccine project, you know, all that is going to look, you know, is going to look different in a few years. I mean, and, there, and, and although, as you say, you know, there are these local contingencies, I mean, some of the local contingencies, the differences are huge. Like it seems genetically, some people may be more susceptible to it than others. It seems some countries got it first. You know, some countries have a history of internal travel like the United States does that others don't. Or even, um, even having a, a tradition of extended families and having the elderly live with the young, as I think was true in Italy. Exactly. And that seems to have a, that had a big impact at particular moments in the pandemic in some communities um, and not at others. Whereas, you know, in Scandinavia, where everybody practically lives by themselves, you know, it took longer to spread. Right. So you have to, if you, you know, if you're willing to take into consideration all those different cultural things, um, but still, I, yeah, I do think it is going to be, and you know, what it turns out to be a test of is really, it's a test of not just of a given country's bureaucracy. I mean, that's kind of, um, you know, and some countries do have better and worse bureaucracies or their, their public health bureaucracy, but it's also a test of public trust in that bureaucracy. You know, are people willing to listen to the public health bureaucrats? Um, and it turns out, for, for example, in South Korea, they were, you know, in Taiwan, they were. In Germany, they were. You know, in the United States, they weren't. Um, and in Brazil, they weren't. But the United States, they might have been. I mean, I think one of the points you're making is, I mean, had Joe Biden been president at the start of the pandemic, how different would would the situation be, you think? I think it would have been very different. Um, I mean, I think there, there, you know, there could have been politicized resistance. Even so, I mean, there's a little bit even in Germany, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot actually in Britain, you know, from the same kinds of, I don't know, so-called anti-government or anti-lockdown or sometimes just COVID right. denial groups. Um, but but no, I think if we'd had a unified approach from the federal government, if the federal government had worked with states from the beginning and not against them, I mean, remember, you know, the, the Trump administration at one point threw itself into working to end the pandemic. Then at one point, this is early on, thought it was just going to affect only blue states. And then they said, oh, well, the hell with it. You know, we don't care about blue states. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you know, let New York burn. I mean, so if we'd had a if we had a federal government that was actually interested in the welfare of all Americans and not just in people who voted for Trump. Um, yeah, I think we would have had a very different, you know, different outcome from the beginning. You know, if, if Fauci's role hadn't been politicized, if, um, you know, if the president hadn't sent mixed messages. I mean, imagine if even if Donald Trump had worn a mask from day one how that would have affected mask wearing, which turns out to be very important in, in preventing the spread of the pandemic, you know, how that would, and that, and how that would have, again, encouraged this sense of trust um, that you need um, in order to get people to go along with, which I mean, which, which are with, well, let's face it, are very inhumane requests. I mean, who wants to stay home alone? You know, who wants to cancel their wedding? You know, who wants to only sit outdoors in restaurants, you know, particularly in the middle of the winter? I mean, nobody, nobody likes this. And persuading people that it's useful or worth doing, at least for a limited period of time, you know, you require someone 
who's trustworthy. And we just didn't have that at the United States, at least not at the national level. And yeah, I do think if there had been, I mean, not even, I mean, not even Joe Biden, I mean, almost like Mitt Romney, if he were president. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a partisan issue. It's a, it's, it's, if we'd had a, a person in charge who was committed to public health, who was, who was in the White House because he wanted to work on behalf of the country and not on behalf of himself, I think we might've got a different outcome. Yeah. Someone who wasn't suggesting from time to time that Americans inject bleach might've been helpful. In the- right. I mean, just an, just someone who was interested in and understood science, even at a kind of, you know, high school chemistry level, that would have been useful. We'll be right back to my interview with Ann Applebaum after this. Can we go back to the to the third of the population that you know arguably has authoritarian predispositions? Because it, it's it's consuming me this idea and how to think about it. I'm not sure this is the right way to ask the question, but is there a moral judgment to be made about that third? And I'm you know just off the top of my head, my worry is that people will immediately think that that's true. So you're talking about these people who like or, or predisposed towards authoritarianism, and it may be latent or it may not be latent. But boy, that's a problem, and it's their problem, and we should like them less, and we should respect them less, and maybe we should think about ways, you know, to oust them. But it it seems to me that's not the right way of thinking about it, is it? So that is the instinctive way to think about it. Right. I mean, and even, you know, I've written endlessly about this thing. Even I feel that. I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, you know, what would you do if Ivanka Trump walked in the room? Would you be polite to her? No. You know, I mean, so... There's an instinctive desire to shout at people, you know, and call them names or exclude them or and and I and that's entirely human, you know, or 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 find ways of excluding them or reducing their influence. And and I mean reducing their influence in the long term is a legitimate strategy, and we can talk about that in a minute as well. But all I wanted to say is that thinking long term, we also have to think about what will work. I mean, if they're never going away, you know. And we're not going to deport them and we're not going to deprive them of the vote. I mean, we're just not going to, you know, that's obviously none of that is going to happen. How do we um, adjust our politics or adjust the way that we talk about America? Or how do we somehow incorporate them into the national story so that they feel they have a, a future in a very diverse, very heterogeneous, very noisy America? How do we, how do we, you know, it's, and it's not that, I mean, You know, again, people instinctively want to say, oh, well, that's their problem. You know, how come their radio stations don't go and interview yoga teachers in Brooklyn, you know, and ask them, why did they vote for Joe Biden? Right. Right. Why do we have to go to, you know, Ohio and ask them what they think? How come they don't ask us what we think? Why don't they go to Georgia and talk to, you know, all the black women who, who, who helped elect two senators? The answer is that they don't. But nevertheless, for our sake, if we want to preserve our system and we want our democracy to be stable, we have to think, you know, we, even though we don't want to, we have to find a way to communicate with them. I guess what I'm asking, I'm asking something slightly different. And it's not how you treat the third when they become activated and show their predisposition and decide to do uh, and support anti-democratic things. I'm, I'm talking about in a society where you have that third and they have the predisposition, but it's not been animated. And you come to think about that third, you know, as you as you think about policies and you think about uh, political rhetoric and everything else, because it's not clear to me, 
at least in the way I've understood it, that that predisposition is born necessarily of something that you can pass judgment on only in its, in its manifestation, right? I mean, aren't there some people in that third who just, for whatever reason, dislike complexity that you don't necessarily pass judgment in the same way on people who have an, you know, an antithetical feeling towards complexity as you do against people that you might describe as being racist or bigoted or anti-free. I mean, I don't know that the people with the, the authoritarian predisposition, do we think of them as being people who innately uh, are into the idea of, of not having freedom? No, I mean, um, Stenner's argument is that they, um, sometimes this dislike of complexity manifests itself as racism. And, and that's, that's what a lot of her research shows. Or it manifests itself as a dislike of, you know, difference or divergence or change even. I mean, so in a, in a moment when there's lots and lots of economic and informational and other kinds of change happening, this may also be a problem. And she would argue that, you know, that no, we shouldn't pass moral judgment on the instinct, but we should find ways of channeling it into more useful, more useful is the wrong word, less harmful forms if we can. So yeah, I think you can make a, a division between someone's innate instincts and then the way they're manifest. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that that's sort of important with how you think about how they should be dealt with and the instinct, you know, to yell and to, um, and to alienate and to ostracize, you know, maybe should be tempered by that. Not everyone's gonna like that, that assessment. No, I mean, no one's going to like that assessment. And it's very, un, you know, and as I said, it's not even that easy if you think about how, you know, how do you feel about, you know, encountering in your life or among your friends, um, somebody whose views you find repugnant. Um, no, your it's instinct very is not, to, is not to be nice to them, right? And I, I am not claiming that I was ever any better at this than anybody else. I, just to be clear, I'm not claiming some, you know, some special talent. All I'm saying is that you know, maybe not so much at the personal level, but at the societal level, acting like this is a problem that can go away just by shouting about it, you know, is going to turn out to be wrong. Um, just as it's just as it was wrong in Northern Ireland, and it's been wrong in other places. It just it just increases the polarization and the and the anger. You write about Poland quite a bit because you have lived there for many years, and one of the the party that you were referring to, I think, earlier in Poland is called the Law and Justice Party. Is that what they stand for, Law and Justice? I mean, there are lots of jokes about that. I mean, they, <laughs> they stand for you you have know, to use Ill that illegality language. and injustice. You know, there's many, there are many memes along those lines. Um, but they, you know, that not an, I mean, if, you know, think about what we were talking about a minute ago, not an accident that they describe themselves as law and justice because they're appealing to people who like the idea of a, you know, a unitary state of a one-party state of a strong and um, you know intolerant state, um, and calling themselves law and justice is is exactly what um, those kinds of people want to hear. And you talk about how people in Poland have become radicalized, and I want to ask you a question about that, and then bridge it with a question about America. Were political figures in Poland who had you know said lots of things about a mayor of a, of a major city in Poland, such that at some point someone assassinated that mayor, plunged a knife into the heart of the mayor. And you write that the quote, the taboo against political violence has been broken in Poland and no one is certain who might be the next victim, end quote. Did you feel that in any way after the insurrection of January 6th in the United States? 
Yes, actually. I, I felt that way after the after the um, the threatened kidnapping of the governor of Michigan, that it's it's pretty clear that there's some part of the Trumpist camp, um, including Trump himself, um, who had already begun to contemplate the idea that violence is now a legitimate force in U.S. politics, that you can use it to stop, you know, to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president, to, to, to eliminate people that you don't like. It may be that the fallout from the invasion of the Capitol tones this down for a period, just the way that the murder of the mayor of Gdansk did in Poland. I mean, it sort of made everyone step back for a second. But it being, you know, look, we've had political violence in America for our whole history. Um, it's just taken different forms at different times. Um, but but I, but I absolutely, I mean, one of the reasons I'm, you know, I'm interested in this question of what are we going to do about the people who don't accept the rules of our democracy is that I'm worried about violence. Um, and the more polarization you have, the and, and the more of these kinds of, you know, these these events where, um, you know, people's lives are threatened, where, I mean, there's a whole, was a whole bunch of, over the last few months, um, this examples of public health officials at the state and sometimes like the county or regional level um, had death threats sent against them. Um, there have been people who've resigned from their jobs as, as leaders of public health in particular in, in, in areas because they become afraid. You know, the, the use of that of violent threats now becoming kind of de rigueur in parts of American politics that never knew them before. I mean, these are these are very bad signs. And it means that the, the threat of violence did not end on January the 6th. There's an issue related to this that I've been thinking about a lot because I've had some personal experience with it. And you raise it in the book and you've raised it in your other writings. And it's obviously implicated in these questions that you're asking and, and addressing. And that is with respect to some group of these folks, Trump supporters here or some of the folks you've written about in Poland or in other places. There is some set, subset of those folks who arguably don't believe what they're saying. And they are in some ways putting on an act. And I want to know, A, if you think that is true of some of these folks, and B, if it is true, is that better or worse for the future? So in the book, I give, I as you know, I, I go through a few examples. Um, I give several explanations for these kinds of people. The book is mostly about people like that. It's about educated people who have chosen, who have very radical politics. Um, and I think there's a range of personality types out there. And some of them are sincere, true believers. Um, but yes, absolutely, some of them are unbelievably cynical. I mean, some of them understand absolutely what they're doing. So who are they? they name, name some names in that category. <laughs> Tucker Carlson. Tucker <laughs> Carlson. I mean, uh, you know, so, some of them are... Um, you, don't put, you don't necessarily put Laura Ingram in that category? I think Laura is more complicated. She believes some of what she says. The human personality is actually very complex and people have different motives in different ways. But I mean, she's also someone, she's someone who's very deeply, and this is a theme that goes throughout the book, she's someone who's also very deeply resentful of what she sees as a kind of world of mainstream media, I don't know exactly who it is, that has never really respected her and hasn't given her the due and credit that she desires. You know, I don't know, the Dartmouth Alumni Association never right. asks her to speak. You know, she's, you know, so she's someone who's, I think, quite deeply motivated by that. You know, she deserves more. She should be, you know, and, and she's also, I think, disappointed by, and this is another, you know, theme that you can see among others in the book, some kind of deep disappointment, you know, that America is not what it was meant to be, that some promise has been broken. You know, she doesn't like the society as much as she thought she would like it or some. So, so I think she's, she has those motivations in addition to 
personal concerns and money. She's made a huge amount of money out of Trumpism. She wasn't a central um, Fox figure, actually, before um, before he became president. Um, but her closeness to him propelled her forward. So I think she's she's obviously motivated by that, too. But I don't think in her case it's the only motivation. But how do we think about these folks? So on the one hand, do we look at the people who are true believers and think, well, they're lost, and that's unfortunate, but at least have some respect for it because it's true belief? And or do we look at the other folks who are cynics and don't really believe it and say to ourselves, well, they're cynics, they're really the worst people? Or do we say about them, yeah, look, <clears throat> easy come, easy go when the world changes a little bit and if it suits their uh, you know, personal motivations uh, or incentives, then they'll they'll switch back into reality and snap out of the radicalism. I'm not sure how to think about those folks. I'm not sure I can make a generalization about it. I mean, even as you're talking, I'm thinking about various people I've known and some of whom I wrote about. And, you know, there is a brand of conservative philosopher um, who stayed out of politics. I'm thinking of Roger Scruton, who's an English philosopher who I write a little bit about, who stayed out of politics and who spent his whole life trying to carve a kind of vision of, basically it was English nationalism. And he was interested in many other things too, but um, that he was that he was very dedicated to. And he, I mean, I would say he's absolutely a true believer in that. He was not cynical at all. And, you know, nor is he ever particularly good at making money or anything like that. So he was, so, you know, I, I think we can maintain a respect for people who are intellectuals and who continue to, you know, who, who try and um, think through ideas um, and are willing to have those ideas challenged in the intellectual world. I mean, I think once people like that enter politics, and he didn't, but others do, then some element of cynicism or some element of criticism or, you know, or some other element of, of, you know, personal desire for power has come into it. And then I think we don't have to give them any special credit for being true believers. I mean, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't have any, I mean, the fact that Laura Ingraham sincerely believes that America is declining um, because it's more racially integrated and there's a lot of integra- a lot of immigration, I don't see why we have to give her some credit for being, you know, for truly and deeply believing that. I mean, we can just still think she's wrong. Uh, so. Yeah, people like Steve Bannon, for example. I, I, I'm not sure how to think. I think Steve Bannon is, is, believes in certain things, but not that deeply. Uh, and he's a total play actor uh, in the service of Donald Trump. And he probably was play acting again uh, as he was beseeching the former president to pardon him. And I sometimes think that makes him the worst. And I sometimes think, well, maybe that's not the worst because it's an act. And I, you know, I, I struggle with sort of the moral judgment <laughs> that, that nobody's asking me for, but that I'm pronouncing in my own head. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess I don't think in those categories. Um, I'm not a lawyer, maybe. I don't know. I, because I, I look at each case like that and I see these, you know, these complex motives and these different things that drive people. And I think the, you know, the worst ones are the ones who do the most damage. I mean, Laura's done an incredible amount of damage. I mean, even just by promoting hydroxychloroquine as a fake cure for COVID. I mean, so I, you know, in that sense, she's, I find her to be, you know, deeply evil, maybe even more so than Steve Bannon. Um, even though I do think she's at some level believes in what she's saying. It doesn't make it any better. So my feeling is that you judge them by their actions and the, and, and the results they achieve or don't achieve. You write about America from the perspective of being an American, obviously, but having spent a lot of time abroad and understanding the politics and history of these other countries. And you say something very interesting about America. Well, a lot of different interesting things about how Americans think about themselves and exceptionalism. And that's been written about very frequently. But you talk about how 
you know, civilizations and forms of government rise and fall in other parts of the world because there's been a lot of time. And you say that often history feels circular to those people in other parts of the world. And you say in America, on the contrary, uh, it does not feel circular. It is often told as a tale of progress, forward and upward, with the Civil War as a blip in the middle, end quote. Is that because America is a little bit different or because we're telling ourselves fibs or because we're just such a young country <laughs> that, that we haven't seen both the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and Mussolini on the same landmass? I think it's a little bit of fibbing. I think it's a little bit of not knowing much history. And I think, but I think most of it is luck. You know, we were unbelievably lucky from about 1945, you know, almost up to the present in that our civilization expanded, um, our democracy expanded from being a ropey and rather restricted one. It included more and more people. We, you know, we attracted admirers all over the world. Um, we became more and more prosperous. And so it felt like what we were living was this trajectory in one direction. And I, it's funny, I just, I just gave a lecture to a group of um, 20-year-olds at Johns Hopkins um, where I teach part-time. And I was trying to explain to them why it was in 1989, um, Francis Fukuyama could write a book that said history is over. I mean, now I'm, very, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm mush messing up his thesis, but essentially the way it was popularized and misinterpreted was history is over because liberal democracy is the best of all possible forms of government. And eventually everyone's going to want that. That idea or that, that boulderization of his idea, the reason why it caught on was because it felt real. That was the experience of a lot of Americans. You know, we had seen this expansion of our, our democracy inside America. Then we saw the expansion of democracy abroad. And we saw, you know, the, the fall of communism and the incorporation of many post-communist states into NATO. And it just, it, it, that's what it felt like. And so we were very lucky. Um, and what we had forgot was that polarization is what's normal and conflict is what's normal. And the idea that civilizations rise and fall is normal and that what we've just lived through was abnormal. Um, and funny enough, of course, and this I, I also write about, the founding fathers of the United States absolutely thought that history was circular, you know, and they absolutely were worried about democracy rising and falling. And they were, all of them, as they were writing the Constitution, were reading books about Greece and Rome. And in particular, they were reading about the fall of the Roman Republic which obsessed them, you know, and the rise of Caesar. And how to prevent Caesar, that going forward. And how to prevent that. And our constitution is written by people who are thinking about the Roman Republic and how to prevent that experience from being repeated. And so they were, they were aware of it. I mean, in a, in a way, even though they were creating really what was the first modern democracy, they were absolutely looking backwards and thinking about the past. You know, in our generation, because we've been so lucky, you know, this, whatever it was, however you want to calculate it, 70 years, seven decades of good luck, we stopped looking backwards and we, you know, we stopped thinking about, I mean, when I don't know about you, I was brought up in the United States almost to think about, I mean, you know, the Civil War, I mean, we studied it in school and so on, but I mean, there was no subject more dead than that one. I mean, the idea that you could revive emotions around the Civil War was like saying that, you know, I don't know, some figures from the Middle Ages would return. I mean, it was just not a living subject. Did I imagine that, you know, 20 years later, somebody would bring a Confederate flag into the Capitol building 
you know, or that everybody would be digging through the history of Reconstruction to try to understand what's going on in America today. You know, no. <laughs> Although you, you, you do say in the book that, you know, there's this politics of nostalgia on the part of some people who don't want a literal return to the past, but want things to be sort of hierarchical in the way they were in, before. I think you mentioned in the UK, nobody wants India back, but, you know, pe- people want the sense that Great Britain you know, has an empire or has the standing of, of, a, of a country with an empire such that the sun never sets on it. And the same kind of attitude exists on the part of some people in America too about this country. So this is a, this, I, I spend a lot of time trying to pick apart this nostalgia and, and think about what it means. I mean, some of it does come from the fact that we live in a world that is changing so fast, you know, and we don't acknowledge it. I mean, for people to say things aren't now like the way they used to be, is not wrong. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. As a definitional matter, that's, that's <laughs> so, so No, true. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and the city that I remember from my childhood, which was very small and sleepy, you know, and is now totally transformed. It looks completely different. Different kinds of people live in it. Um, I find that change actually very exciting, and I'm, you know, it's much more interesting city to me than it um, seems like now than, than, than it was uh, 40 years ago. On the other hand, um, for a lot of people, something was lost, that sleepiness, that feeling that you could go and talk to your neighbors. You know, I don't know. There, there were things that were lost in the, in the rapid modernization and urbanization of the last several decades. And of course, there are things lost in the, in the movement of life you know, from offline to online, which has been some accelerated and made crazy by the, by the pandemic. And maybe it was a political mistake, particularly of people who like and enjoy and are happy about these changes. Maybe it was a political mistake to to forget that some people would be bothered by them or that they would feel some sense of loss, this sense of community or sense of belonging or whatever it was, some sense of stability that, that they had in the past. And, you know, maybe there could have been a better way to talk about it or deal with it. You know, instead, what we've got are these nationalist and retrograde movements. And, and by the way, we have them everywhere, you know, in almost every country, which actually do want to reconstruct the past. So it's not that, you know, we feel, you know, we like looking at old pictures of Germany as it was in, in the 1920s you know, or 1890s. You know, we actually want that Germany back, you know, or we want America of the 1950s back or we want, you know, and that and what and all and everything that goes with it, meaning you know, bring back racial segregation, bring back, you know, traditional marriages, whatever, you know, whatever piece of it you find most appealing or least appealing. But, but there is something, there is a nub of it that's of that, you know, some of that is just politics. Some of it has been ginned up by people like Laura Ingram, but there is a, there is a nub of it that is, is real and isn't just fiction. And I hope that going forward, you know, returning back to your subject of, you know, what are we going to do about the one third? I hope that going forward, Democratic politicians and, and actually Republican politicians think about this things that were lost and think about how to restore them. And Applebaum, thank you so much for making the time. This book, I think everyone needs to read, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, not a romance novel, as we discussed. Congratulations on the book and, and thanks for all that you do. Oh, thanks for talking. My conversation with Ann Applebaum continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider.
So I want to end the show this week to tell you about a story that grabbed my attention and that you probably have not heard about. As many of you may know, I'm a little bit of a language and grammar geek. So when I heard about the story, I wanted to share it with you. So here's the story as reported in the Washington Post not too long ago. There's a woman, Hillary Krieger, who was at her parents' house in Boston when a friend of hers was, I guess, trying to eat a slice of orange and squirted himself in the eye with, I guess, some citrus juice. And Hillary exclaims, oh, the orange or biscuited. And her friend said, it did what? And there ensued a debate about whether orbisculate was a word. They even made a bet about it. The two of them then went to the dictionary to find out if that word orbisculated was real, because it was used all the time in Hillary's home growing up to describe just this thing, getting spritzed in the eye when digging into a fruit or a vegetable. And lo and behold, orbisculate was not found in the dictionary. When Hillary told her dad the word wasn't there, he revealed somewhat sheepishly that it was actually a word he had made up in college, and it just stuck so he used it all the time. Tragically, Hillary's dad, Neil Krieger, passed away from COVID-related complications last April at the age of 78. Since restrictions were pretty severe, the Kriegers couldn't have a proper funeral or memorial. And Hillary told the Post that she spent a lot of time on the phone with friends and family talking about her father, and the story of the word, or biscuit, kept coming up. So she and her brother devised a plan to honor their father to do what? to get the word orbisculate adopted into the dictionary. Hopefully, Merriam-Webster. Now, as you may guess, nominating a word for dictionary status is no small thing. It can take years, even decades. That's to make sure that certain trendy words that fall out of favor relatively quickly don't make their way into the dictionary forever. But the Krieger family is very committed, and they've actually outlined and posted a 50-point plan to get the word orbisculate approved. They describe the plan on their website, and we'll include that in the show notes of this episode. But it includes things like promoting its use in articles and in speech. The more people generally who use the word orbisculate improves the possibility and the likelihood that a dictionary will adopt it. So for example, if you're writing about your experience digging into a Dorian fruit, you might write, be careful not to get orbisculated. It might be an unpleasant experience. By the way, there is no other word in English that describes what orbisculate means. So that's part of what makes it special. To my mind, there's been, I think, a a fairly loose adoption of new words, not necessarily by Merriam-Webster, but by Dictionary.com. And if Dictionary.com can approve, as it recently did, words like supposedly and irregardless, which is blasphemy to me, then I think orbisculate is not a bridge too far. So at a time of such immeasurable loss, stories like this one are especially powerful. The Krieger family lost someone they loved very dearly, who, as Hillary describes, had a mischievous and inventive spirit. Here's what she said to the Post, quote, It speaks to his creativity and the idea that even when something's painful and annoying, like getting grapefruit juice in your eye, you can laugh and have fun with it, end quote. And while the family could not gather in person to mourn or hug or celebrate the life of this person they loved, they can honor and memorialize him with this perfect new word, orbisculate. And now we can help too. So I encourage everyone to check out their website. And the next time you get sprayed in the face while peeling an orange, say to the person next to you, ugh, it orbisculated. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ann Applebaum. 
If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.